Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, Connecticut Explored's Elizabeth Norman and Jennifer LaRue explore stories from the fall 2016 issue on the theme of crime and punishment in Connecticut. Here's Ruth Duncan. If anyone had dared prophesy to Gibbs the pirate, whose name struck terror to every seafarer's soul seventy years ago, that after his death the sack in which beat his brutal heart would be tanned and made into a tobacco pouch, Gibbs would probably first have laughed at him for a madman, and then with ready knife or pistol would have silenced him forever, as he had many another. Yet strange as it may seem, the pericardium of this last and bloodiest of modern pirates hangs to-day in the old Ferris house, not far from Mianus, Connecticut, where a Sunday Journal reporter found it and heard its curious story. When Gibbs was hanged, April 22, 1831, on Bedloe's Island, a boatload of people went down from Stamford to see the execution. Illness prevented Grandfather Ferris from making one of the party, and he was bitterly disappointed. As his friends departed, he is said to have called after them, Bring me back the hellhound's heart so long as I can't go myself to see the devil get him. Don't forget now. It's his heart I want. All right, came the answering voices. We'll try to get it for you. There was a physician in the party, and after the life was strangled out of the pirate's huge frame, and he was given over to the doctors for dissection, Mr. Ferris's medical friend appropriated the heart of the dead sea robber. Its unusual size made him decide to keep it himself, and then it occurred to him that its pericardium, the sack in which it hangs, would better serve Grandfather Ferris as a memento, and he gave it to him. Mr. Ferris straightway had the heart covering tanned by the village tanner. Then it passed into the hands of the harness-maker, who very neatly turned over the edges and ran a cord through them, making of it a tobacco pouch of curious but convenient shape. Captain Kidd and Morgan the Buccaneer are more familiar names than that of Gibbs, but it is doubtful if either of these sped more souls into the dark hereafter than did Gibbs who sixty years ago was called the Ocean Scourge. Kidd and Morgan have had their biographers by the dozen, but strangely enough, little is known nowadays of Gibbs' frightful career. If ever a man was a disgraced degenerate, Gibbs was. His right name was James D. Jeffers, and his parentage is said to have been neither particularly bad nor good. At twelve, he robbed his father of all his cash and fled to New Orleans. Fearing arrest, he shipped on a vessel bound for Stockholm. Hearing sailor yarns of the soft delights of the islands of the southern seas, he decided to turn pirate. He shipped on Island of Margareta and enlisted in the Colombian Navy, joining the Maria, a trim-built schooner with a privateer's commission in that service. He was made second mate. 
For two months they cruised the Gulf of Mexico and the Cuban coast, and captured several rich prizes. But the crew's share of the takings was left unpaid, and led by Gibbs they mutinied and marooned their farmer officers near Pensacola. They cruised under the pennant of a privateer, but having no luck, the black flag was presently hoisted, and Gibbs's bloody career began in earnest. His last voyage was in November 1830, from New Orleans to Philadelphia, on the ship Vineyard, and it was on this vessel that he committed the crimes which brought him to the gallows. The Vineyard's commander was Captain William Thornby. A Negro informed the other members of the crew that there was $50,000 on board. Gibbs joined in the plot to steal it. The captain and mate were murdered and cast into the sea, and when off the Long Island coast the money was brought up on deck and divided. Four of the robbers were drowned trying to reach shore with the plunder. Gibbs and his companions reached Pelican Island, where they buried most of the money they had secured. There it is said to remain to this day. For this crime, Gibbs and the Negro were arrested, tried, and hanged. That was Ruth Duncan reading from the New York Journal, dated September 6, 1896. This is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored for Grading the Nutmeg, and I'm here today with Ruth and with Christopher Shields, the archivist for the Greenwich Historical Society, and we're here in the archives. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Ruth is currently living in Fairfax, Virginia, but she's come up to Greenwich on a vacation, but also doing a little bit of business here in the archives. Tell us what you're here doing today. Today I've been turning over some more of my grandfather Isaac Ferris's papers to the society because this is where he lived and the family have lived for generations. And so one of those papers that you had previously donated to the Historical Society was the New York Journal clipping that you just read. And it came with an unusual uh, item to which you wrote about in the fall issue of, yes. the, of Connecticut Explored. And we're going to hear from Christopher in a little bit about what one does with this object in a, a museum archives. But Ruth, first tell us how you came across this, uh, both this newspaper clipping and this article, and, and tell us a little bit more about it. Well, I suppose the thing to do is to explain first that I found it in my grandfather's desk when he sold the old house on the post road in Riverside. He came to live with us about a mile away. My grandfather died in 1959. In 1996, my mother went to live at Hill House, a assisted living community in Riverside. I came and went through all of the things in the house. And just before we had to go south again, my husband and I said, Oh, Grandpa's desk! And just bundled all of the paper and small stuff that was in it into a couple of grocery store plastic bags and took it home. And eventually I got round to looking to see what was there, and there were all kinds of things. But there was a newspaper article, the New York Journal, from se September 6, 1896, and it was resonant because it was 1996. It was 100 years old. And I couldn't figure out why that particular thing was saved. And then I read the article. And, I, and when in the third or fourth paragraph it said, 
something about Grandfather Ferris, I just kind of went, oh, and and uh, read it with eyes getting bigger and bigger as I went. And then I had this awful feeling, I'm, I'm going to find something, and I'm not sure I want to. But I kept looking through papers, and practically the next day, I just opened an ordinary envelope and went, <gasps> because the thing in the envelope looked an awful lot like the drawing at the top of the, of the article in the newspaper. So I did what anybody else would do. I showed it to my brothers and sisters when I could assemble them or any that I could find, and I brought it to the archivist at, at here at the Greenwich Historical Society because I had already been giving away a number of the things that I had found at the house and the Historical Society had received graciously quite a few items from the family. So the next time I went north, I saw Susan Richardson, who was the archivist at that time, and she was intrigued. Christopher, describe this object for us. You're the new, newer archivist. You didn't, you were not here at the time that you received it, but this is something in the collection now that's under your care. Uh, describe it for our listeners. Well, I mean, it's a, it's not really a very um, impressive looking piece. It's, it doesn't seem like it could really. It's been called that it was made into a tobacco pouch, but it doesn't really look like. It wouldn't hold very much tobacco, let's put it that way. And it's very delicate, and it certainly is showing its age. It's a very, very unique piece. It's probably shrunk significantly from its original size, but, I mean, there is certainly a a heart shape to it. Somebody could uh, certainly envision that there was at one point uh, an enclosing somebody's heart. It's kind of... Well, I mean, it's kind of gruesome. <laughs> but it is uh, literally a, a pouch, and then along the top, it has been sewn a edging, and uh, a there's a string or thread attached to it that would have gathered up the pouch to close it up. So it possibly is has shrunken quite a bit, but it's what probably four inches by three inches, or at this when stage? I when I measured it, it was something like three by three and a half inches. Okay. It may have shrunk a little since yeah. then. After Susan Richardson took a look at it, what did you do next, or what did she do next with it? Susan Richardson wanted to take it to the Connecticut Medical Examiner's Office to be authenticated because we were not sure, you know, is it real? There was a significant ew factor uh, to start with, but when one doesn't know if it's real or not, then it's really, it's just all speculation. So... I was a little hesitant to let it go because it's, well, there just isn't another like it anywhere. But but I said, fine, you know, we need to know. This is something that has to be done. So she took it to the examiner and left it with him. And in due time, the examiner called me on the telephone to get permission to take a teeny, teeny sample for testing with the microscope because he had talked to a number of his colleagues and they had decided that the since the item had been tanned, the DNA was destroyed and were 
brainstorming, I guess, to find out what the test that would make make a judgment of any kind reasonable. And they finally decided that blood would be the key. Like Lady Macbeth, they wouldn't be able to get all the blood out of it. So uh, they they looked for a red blood cell, which in humans is different than it is in, in other animals. So based on the fact that he found at least one red blood cell in the sample he took, the medical examiner decided that it was probably human in origin. This is from the uh, report of the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, and it, it notes that uh, microscopic examination was performed, and it notes that there's at least one clearly visible biconcave disc-shaped red cell uh, identified in the sample that they took, and it says, based on this examination, it is my opinion that this material is most likely human in origin. That got you a little bit further down the road to this mystery, but as we've come to find in in your writing the article for the fall issue, there's so many more mysteries, most of which will never be answered. The New York Journal article mentions that Charles Gibbs is probably the name used by James Jeffers. James D. Jeffers, James yes. James D. Jeffers, probably of Newport, Rhode Island. And there is a book that historian Joseph Gibbs, I assume of no relation, did copious research called Dead Men Tell No Tales. And he lays out the known facts of Jeffers life and also points out where there are some mysteries because James Jeffers proved to be quite a colorful character especially after he was convicted and he's sitting in his jail cell and the uh, press is coming to see him and the stories and the yarns got longer and woolier and much of it is absolutely un unprovable in in matter of fact I was impressed on reading the book that uh, while the article talks about the the huge the huge figure of Gibbs, really he was rather slight of figure and not not a large man at all, and he was well spoken so that people had a hard time believing he could be this person who was a pirate, yet he undeniably was a pirate. So we have this newspaper article. We have this possibly human remains tobacco pouch. We have a very colorful story of Gibbs, but the big mystery is how could it possibly have landed in your grandfather's desk? Well, yes. The answer is, <laughs> I found it there. That's how we know it did. But, but, but connecting those connecting, dots... Uh, it's difficult, but you... Well, one it's, of the first things you have we have to think as historians is it was very typical in that day because the medical profession was, was still in its infancy. Infant, this is 1831, that bodies for studying were mm -hmm. in high demand. Absolutely. And there are even stories, about, even stories about Yale medical students uh, digging up bodies to use mm -hmm. for science. But so for probably most of the century, bodies of people who criminals. Were, were criminals were donated to Absolute. medical science. And, and that is, in fact, what, what happened here. So yes. that gives a first step of how his body, any parts of his body, mm -hmm. end up mm -hmm. other than in a grave. Right. And we know that the head is still well, in part of a the head. Yeah. The cranium is the cranium. only part of the skull. It's, 
is in a collection in, in yes in New York. The story does say that there was a medical doctor, uh, Dr. John Augustine Smith of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of right. the University of the State of the New York. The body was turned over to him. It also said in the book that he personally may not have been in charge. He would have underlings deal mm -hmm. with it directly because it was really, it's really pretty awful when it comes off the scaffold. And there was no way to connect the physician who went down from Stanford, allegedly, uh, to having a connection with that medical college, let alone this specific doctor. But it's not impossible, because no, that, it's that would... not that far from Stanford to right. New York City by water. And there is really no other documentation. You didn't obviously went through your grandfather's paper, so there was never any other. He never talked about the story. He, he never, didn't write any letters. He never told any. He never even told his children. Okay. My mother said, "What?" <laughs> Horrified. And then, of course, today with the DNA evidence, it because there is the piece of the cranium still mm -hmm. extant or identified with him. Mm -hmm. If the pouch had any existing DNA, there would have been a, an ability to make right. that connection to right. identify the pouch as James Jeffers. Mm -hmm. But the tanning process, uh, is, we, we lost that, right? Which, which is sort of the most frustrating piece of this, because well, yes, you know, But on the other hand, you know, if we hadn't, if it hadn't been tanned, it wouldn't exist at all well, at this point, because this is 185 years after the yeah. fact. Christopher, tell us about caring for it or having it in the collection. Have you ever had it on view? No, we've never had it. We've never exhibited it. To be honest, I'm not sure that we ever would. I mean, I think it presents, you know, I think it presents some challenges given the nature of what it is. And, you know, certainly the the mores have changed since since this, you know, this story began as far as what, it would be very difficult to picture something like this happening today, we hope. But, I mean, it is interesting, and, and even aside from the artifact itself, it it kind of tells us a lot about, you know, the way people viewed crime and criminals uh, back at that time, and it shows how, how far and wide the notoriety of this particular man had spread, probably in no short order due to his own uh, efforts, uh, with the press and in terms of how I mean we have it we preserve it in our you know in our collection in our um, in our vault with the with some other papers related to uh, the Ferris family when I first learned that it might be human the society's whole attitude changed instantly before they had been kind of wanting it because I thought it was a hoax I really I th I felt bad that because grandpa had been duped. And then when it became possible that it really is the real thing. But at that point, also the society said that they didn't, they didn't want to touch it because of upset about the treatment of human remains in, in archives and in, in uh, museum situations. But they did it. And I am grateful because I don't know what I would do with it. Yeah. If they yeah. won't take it. My grandfather was very proud of being a descendant of Jeffrey Ferris, who was one of the seven proprietors of Greenwich, the original founders. So Ferris's have been here forever. That long, long connection to the town of Greenwich probably factored into 
you know, the ultimate decision to accept the uh, the artifact, because I mean, it's, you can't really underestimate, you know, the contribution that the family made to the town, and you know, accompanied not not just in and of itself, but also accompanied by all the other documentation that that Ruth had shared with us. Um, I think it helped make a more complete picture. This is the only anomaly to, as far as I know, 300 and some years of sober, quiet, mindful, <laughs> minding their own business family. Thank you very much, Ruth and Christopher, for sharing this story. I loved meeting you both. Uh, wonderful story. It was great to talk about it. Thank you so much. Next up, the story of Old Newgate Prison. Elizabeth and Jennifer visit with three people with deep ties to the site, one of the state's most popular tourist attractions. It's been closed for the last six years, and you'll hear about what's been going on and when you can visit this fall. On August 28, 1775, John Veets placed an ad in the Connecticut Current. It read, Escape from Newgate Prison, Three Pounds Reward. In the night after the 24th of August, Newgate Prison was broke up and the following prisoners made their escape. The notorious Richard Steele, he is about 5 feet 9 inches high, pitted with the smallpox, has been twice cropped and branded, had on a green coat. Also Richard Marshfield, about 5 feet 10 inches high, about 25 years of age, black hair. Also James McGinley, an Irishman, about 5 feet 8 inches high, black hair, darkish complexion, speaks broad, wore a claret-colored coat, white diaper jacket, a pair of spotted Manchester breeches. Whoever will take up said fellows and return them to the prison from whence they escape shall have three pounds reward for each. That Richard Steele had been twice cropped and branded reflects two things, that he was a repeat offender and that his experience with Connecticut's criminal justice system spanned a major shift in how that system viewed rehabilitation of convicted criminals. In the colonial era, you could be literally branded a criminal. Other punishments were whipping or having part of your ear cut off. Steele had endured at least two of these. The new approach was incarceration and putting prisoners to work for the state's profit. That's how Steele found himself imprisoned in the dank tunnels of an abandoned copper mine. But not for long. At the time that Steele, Marshfield, and McKinley escaped from Newgate Prison, it had been an operation less than two years. Steele would go on to escape from Newgate a total of three times. When it opened in December 1773, Newgate Prison and what is now East Granby was thought to be escape-proof. The former copper mine consisted of a network of underground tunnels accessed by two vertical shafts cut into solid rock. As Karen Peterson relates in her story, Escape from Newgate Prison, in the summer 2006 issue of Connecticut Explored, one shaft, just three and a half feet in diameter, descended 25 feet. The other shaft, the one used to haul the ore up out of the mine, was wider and descended 70 feet. Newgate was transformed into a prison by adding a guardhouse and iron doors over the mine shafts. The very first prisoner to arrive, John Hinson, escaped in just 18 days. The next prisoners to escape the following May attempted to break through an abandoned shaft filled with debris. The shaft collapsed, and two of the five prisoners were never found. Speculation was that they were either buried in the rubble or had, in fact, escaped, and the three apprehended prisoners escaped just two weeks later. After yet another fire burned down the guardhouse in 1782, the state abandoned it for a brief period, 
but then reopened it in 1790 with improvements, including a fire-resistant brick guardhouse. Meanwhile, there were plenty of people who wanted to get into Newgate, tourists, that is. Officials hoped such a visit would deter people from a life of crime. The numbers are astonishing. In 1810 alone, overseers reported that 5,400 people visited, paying an admission fee that was pocketed by the guards. In 1827, Newgate Prison closed, and a more modern prison opened in Weathersfield, which you can read about in our fall 2016 issue. But not to worry, tourists could still get their prison fix. Charles Dickens visited the Weathersfield Prison in 1842. Newgate transferred into private hands and began its second life as a tourist attraction. But that history is nearly as full of drama as it was when it was a prison, if less a matter of life and death. More recently, it's been closed for restoration and stabilization. State Representative Tammy Zawistowski has been keeping her eye on the project, and we'll talk with her in a moment. After 1900, Newgate reopened as a privately owned tourist attraction with a hotel and tavern. A 1927 brochure says, When motoring through historic Connecticut, visit the most commanding ruin in all New England. See old Newgate Prison, go down into the Granby Copper Mines, eat a chicken dinner at the Newgate Tavern, or picnic under our mountain oaks or stroll through the woods around Newgate Lake and through Newgate Park or dance with your girl in Guardhouse Hall. On Facebook's Creating a Sense of Place for Connecticut page, recently William Sullivan recalled visiting prior to the state's reacquisition. Back then, he wrote, they didn't have any of the side or drainage tunnels blocked off, the one that I remember was about three feet in diameter, and we would light a candle and duck walk down there until we hit water. At that time, you had to climb down the ladder. It was in one of the buildings and very much worn. The property was reacquired by the state in 1968. It became one of the four museums operated by the Connecticut Historical Commission, now the State Historic Preservation Office. And, of course, DEEP operates others, such as Gillette Castle. I spoke with Jack Shanahan, who oversaw Newgate's transformation into a state-run historic site. I worked for the Connecticut Historical Commission, uh, which also serves as a state historic preservation office for Connecticut, for 34 years. Uh, my first five years, I was uh, director of the historic sites and museums of the commission, including the old Newgate prison. Why did the state reacquire, actually, uh, Newgate prison yes. in 1968? Well, we, the uh, Connecticut Historical Commission was working on a survey of historic properties all over the state of Connecticut. And that started in, uh, in June of 1966. And in the process of that, they inventoried about 3,400 properties around Connecticut. And then they had a board uh, made up of historians, archaeologists, architectural historians who evaluated those properties and they graded them. And the top grade you could receive was an A, just mm -hmm. like school, and 15 properties fell in that category. Now, the significance of the A was that if these properties, in the, in the opinion of this board, were of national importance and if endangered or in de decline, the state should consider purchasing those properties to preserve them for future generations. And two of those properties, uh, the Old Newgate Prison and the Prudence Cranle House, fell under that uh, category and were subsequently acquired by the state. With Newgate, they felt that the property was was on the decline. It hadn't really been uh, 
being preserved long term, and so they felt that it was of such significance that would be an important site to acquire. And as you said earlier, it was formerly a state property, anyways. Right. Uh, uh-huh. When uh, Newgate closed in the eighteen uh, twenties, uh, it uh, reverted to private ownership. And um, over the years, uh, those owners operated it as a tourist attraction. In 1912, another family took it over uh, after a public auction, and people continued to invite visitors to come there, but it wasn't uh, any kind of formal museum as we think of today. So what did you find when you took it over? I arrived about four months after the acquisition took place. They had a wild bear in a cage. They had uh, other wild animals there, uh, anything that they thought the public would have an interest in, uh, to see, and, and it's in a beautiful location, overlooks a beautiful vista of the, the Farmington Valley. So there was a hodgepodge of things, but these were not items that had any historical connection to the prison operation. Mm-hmm. They certainly were part of the story there. I mean, the guardhouse had been operated in the 1940s as a dance hall. What were your biggest challenges at that point? At that point, the only uh, access to the mine, which is where the prisoners were confined, was down a, a scary ladder, <laughs> about 40-foot wooden ladder, yeah. that the state felt it couldn't uh, operate uh, that with all liabilities being what they were. So they uh, decided we have to find another way to allow the public uh, to visit that place. The logical thing was to build a tunnel entrance some people were very disappointed with that because they remember climbing that old yeah. ladder and saying how exciting that was. And yeah. My first experience, actually, uh, visiting the site, uh, going down the ladder there, a bat came up as I was going oh down. Uh, and <laughs> it didn't bother me, but yeah. it, it did startle me, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to build a visitor center. Uh, yeah. We wanted to stabilize uh, the walls. Uh, there are ruins there. So many people... Uh, who have visited the prison, they remember that experience of going into the mine. And granted, it's not as exciting as going down the ladder, but that is so unique, uh, an undertaking. People think of it as a cave, but it wasn't a cave. It was a copper mine Mm. that was worked in the early 1700s. I think that, to me, that and the location on this beautiful setting that overlooks the Farmington Valley, as I mentioned earlier, are certainly one of the unusual things there. And then the stories, the stories are endless there with the insurrections and escapes and going back to uh, the very first prisoner who lasted uh, about a month. And and then the the connection with George Washington sending some deserters there during the um, uh, revolution. So, So you can't believe the stories until you read the next one. And it was unusual, too. Uh, I think that's the thing people... Uh, can't appreciate. At that time, it was a workhouse. We we refer to it as a prison, but it was a copper mine. And the reason it was selected for this purpose was they thought the prisoners, they wouldn't have to pay, could be working the mine. They could make a profit there. And at the end of the day, you lock them up in the mine. And while the initial crimes, uh, burglary, uh, robbery, uh, horse stealing and counterfeiting were punishable by a first offense of 10 years. Wow. A second offense of life. Wow. That is tough That's on crime. pretty serious stuff. Yeah, <laughs> pretty serious stuff. The prisoners, when they were kept in the mines, were there living quarters? They talk there? about some, some planks that were put down and some straw. Uh-huh. And it was very damp down yeah, there. Yeah. And uh, 
certainly not humane and they had an area down below the mine uh, in the mine called solitary confinement oh, yes. and uh, that was where a prisoner was actually chained uh, to one area uh, one little cave-like uh, setting oh. and uh, there were horrible stories that went with that about a prisoner who had to have his leg amputated because he brought his leg irons up to his knees and the circulation didn't continue. And people say, well, what about women? Where did, did you have any women prisoners there? Well, they didn't until the last three years that the prison was in operation there. They had a total of four women that were uh, incarcerated there. At that point in time, they had a cell block above ground and they were, and those last few years, they were able to house prisoners above ground and not require them to be uh, locked up in the copper mine at nights. But they, yet they continued to operate it as a tourist site, even yeah. though it was a prison, which is remarkable. Well, yeah, the other statistic Karen cited in her story, in 1810, 5,400 people came through in 1810. Yeah. So they had to have actually gotten all the way out there to <laughs> exactly. what's now East Granby, probably was yeah. then Simsbury or, well, Granby, or Granby, Granby at the time. Yeah. yeah. yeah um, there, I mean, they would have had to have gotten out there on horse and carriage. Yeah. Horse and carriage, and maybe the last couple of years after the uh, uh, Northampton New Haven Canal functioned right. from about 1825 oh, to I guess I keep wondering why would a tourist want to go see this back in 1810 or Well, so you know, uh, people turned out for hangings when they mm. were done in publicly. Uh, I guess people were just interested in, in viewing those conditions. And I, I, it's hard to imagine that people uh, would, would travel what it took in those days to go 20 miles out of Hartford to to visit the site, but evidently it didn't discourage them. Great. Well, thank you very much. Okay. I enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. Jennifer interviewed her daughter, Sophie, who she often took there with her son, Charlie, when they were children. My daughter, Sophie, is here with me. Sophie works at both the Mark Twain House and Museum and the Noah Webster House, but she's here today to talk about her memories of visiting Old Newgate Prison as a child. Honestly, the first thing that came to mind, there was some Halloween open house that was pretty wild, but when you went down into the mine itself, right in front of you, there was a hanging man. Not an actual person, just like a huge stuffed animal that was just kind of chilling there. I loved it as a seven-year-old, and my brother did not like it at all. So that's probably my fondest memory. I think I was wearing a big pumpkin <laughs> outfit that day, courtesy of my lovely mother. <laughs> I remember taking you guys there and we'd sit on the picnic tables and look out over the beautiful view of the Berkshire Mountain Range. I remember it always had to happen if it was going to be called a summer. Like we had to have a picnic at Old Newgate Prison if we were going to have a successful summer. I do remember taking you there with Girl Scouts, or maybe it was Brownies at that time, and going way down into the mine shaft and seeing the places where the prisoners actually lived and worked, and there also were some inhabitants of the area down there. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Oh, yes, I do. They had wings. Mm -hmm. They were called bats, mm -hmm. and we were assured that they would not be down there. And when, uh, oh, wow, there's something that flew above our heads. And I thought it would be a good idea. I'm the only one not scared. I'll be the one to go into the cave. So I go in, look up, 
and I'm the only one over there. None of the adults even came over. And lo and behold, there are a ton of bats down there, and they love flying over people's heads. Do you, uh, did you connect at all with the stories of the prisoners? Did you try to imagine what it would be like to actually live and work in those uh, passages down there? Well, I think like most historic sites, it doesn't matter to you if you necessarily remember the people that were there. Of course, that's an added bonus and something that readers of Connecticut Explored and listeners of Grading the Nutmeg, they probably want to hear, yeah, we're going to remember all the stories. I remember none. But it was such a big part of my history that I remember it so vividly. I do have such strong memories of myself being down there. I don't think I ever imagined the prisoners, but I definitely imagined myself down there and what it would be like to stay down there. When you come up out of the mine, the steps are always slick and the guard rails are always... I mean, they're sopping, they're wet, they're dripping, um, and they're freezing, freezing cold. So those kind of sensory tactile memories are what I have. That said, Mm -hmm. I still do work at two museums dedicated to brilliant dead men. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) I, I think there is something to imagining myself in a place, not putting myself in the prisoner's place, but really feeling something there that's important Mm -hmm. and that's what kids remember that that spark of the imagination is probably the most important thing of all i get that completely i spoke with state representative tammy zawistowski about her interest in the site Thank you, Jennifer. I really appreciate the, t- the opportunity to talk a little bit about Newgate. It's, it's a property that I love. The, the first time that I actually went there, and I, I've heard some really great stories about people's first trips there, so everybody's is a little bit different, but I was a camp counselor. Uh, I grew up in Stafford Springs, and we had a group of, of students that we were bringing over to Newgate. And I had, uh, I, I was like 17, 18, and I had the responsibility of about 15 I think they were like maybe seven or eight years old. So you, you bring them down to the mine, and trying to get them out was always a challenge. It was, it was fun. Uh, it, it's, it's a great property. I think it has such appeal to young people. It, it's exciting, but you can, they can learn something at the same time. The prison is currently closed to the public uh, as it undergoes restoration. Tell us a little bit about what's going on. The museum's been actually closed since the end of 2009. That's when they realized that the guardhouse, which if you're familiar with the area, the guardhouse is a building that kind of sticks out into Newgate Road. The guardhouse, which is a large building, they noticed it was starting to crack and it's basically starting to slide downhill diagonally. It was built on mine tailings because when they started the mine, uh, actually they started mining there in 1707, but they would just pull out the the mine, leave the scrap on the ground, and they built that guardhouse right on top of that scrap. Uh, They put some kind of crack indicators on just to measure how much the stresses were. They actually cracked the crack indicators. Uh, That's how how fast that that building was starting to move down the hill. Uh, So it's a massive project. It's about 1.5 million, I believe, was was the total on it. Uh, They had to prop the building up. They put holes through the building. They removed uh, stones, which they numbered, of course, propped it up on needle beams, suspended it in the air, and then took micropilings and attached it to the bedrock. 
Uh, then they put all the stones back where they were supposed to, and it looks really great now. So they just finished that within the past within the past year. It, just, it, it looks great. I mean, there's still other things that need to be done there, but that was the, the major safety issue that they had closed the mine for in 2009. They did uh, some new lighting and some new railings in the mine uh, prior to that, but there is some additional work that needs to be done down there. Uh, some, they, what they did is they put in new railings with LED lighting beneath the railings so that it's almost creepier than, than the overhead lighting they used, used to have. And they also need to put down some non-skid coatings and things like that. Um, there will always be, need to be work done there. Uh, I think the next project is going to be trying to get something done with Veet's Tavern, which is across the street. The Department of Economic and Community Development just recently had somebody out there, an architect out there, to take another look at that to see what needs to be done to keep the paint from peeling. I think one of the things that annoys the, the local people in East Granby the most is the fact that Veet's Tavern is out there. It's a beautiful, beautiful building, and it's been peeling for years. But it has to do with the moisture coming up through there, so they just can't keep the paint on there. Um, repainting it would be futile until they fix the underlying problem. Can you talk a little bit about why the state is making this investment? It is a National Historic Landmark and also a Connecticut Architectural Preserve. That's one of the reasons that it took so much to be able to uh, uh, stabilize that guardhouse. They could not just pour a foundation under it because there's all kinds of things they're finding down there from the prisoners. When it was open, Newgate actually was more profitable than the other museums and actually supported some of the other museums. That's anecdotal information that I, that I have, but it actually did turn a profit when it, when it was open. We'd like to see that happen again because we have, you know, it's, it's a gem, a gem in the rough right now. It needs additional work, but right now, what it would really take is one or two devoted people to it. It wouldn't take that much, but currently we have a state hiring freeze going on. So it's very difficult to be able to try to restaff it. And the other thing is with, with Newgate, where it's located, it has so many other attractions around it, and it can be a magnet for tourism. We have close by the New England Air Museum. We've got the Trolley Museum up in Suffield. We've got uh, the Phelps Hathaway House, Hilltop Farm. Plus, we have bed and breakfasts and restaurants. And also, um, right next to Newgate, there's a bicycle trail on one side, and there's a walking trail on the other, hiking trail that, that runs the ridge. I mean, it's, it's very close proximity. It, we could make this a wonderful destination. And I could just see trying to get some restaurants together with B&Bs, maybe having a themed weekend with, with Newgate. I mean, there's so many different possibilities. And you get Veet's Tavern set up. I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities for outdoor weddings. The site has a ton of potential, and it can draw tourism to the area, which we, we could use it. The public is clamoring for the prison to open again. I know a lot of people, again, just anecdotally miss it and, and would you know take friends from out of town and out of state to, to see the prison. It's a very photogenic site. Can you talk a little bit more? You live in East Granby. You represent the community there. Can you talk a little bit about how they feel about Old Newgate Prison? One of the biggest questions I've gotten since I came into office is when is Newgate Prison going to open? And I understand that uh, Department of Economic and Community Development gets like four or five phone calls a day about it. Uh, what we have done, because it's been closed for such a long time and the community has been really clamoring to find out what's been going on with it, uh, we have scheduled an open house day coming up on October 22nd. Uh, so that even, even that people can get behind the, the prison wall, see what's there. Because if you ride down Newgate Road, you can't see what's going on behind there. You, people have never seen uh, what the renovations entailed or anything. 
We'll be opening Beats Tavern at the time. We'll also have a lot of different events going on. We have other people involved in this as well. We've got Eileen Frank from the Connecticut Historical Society. She's going to be bringing part of their Newgate artifact collection. Uh, Nick Bellantoni, the former state archaeologist, is going to be talking about the prisoner ceremony. Uh, we've got Sarah Sportsman, who, uh, the archaeology. We've got some colonial re- reenactors from the 5th Connecticut Regiment. East Granby Historical Society and the East Granby Economic Development are very involved. We've got a ton of student volunteers um, uh, that were organized by Dave Pelling at the high school. This is a huge volunteer group that's working on this. We only have essentially one state employee that's working with us, and the rest of it, I mean, we're, we're cleaning floors and everything to get ready for this. It's going to be a great day. We're going to have a construction display. We're going to have video tours of the mine, which unfortunately won't be opened. Actually, that's a whole other story. Uh, There is a small population of bats in the mine that seem to be somewhat resistant to the white-nosed fungus. So we are not disturbing the the, the bats. It's not because people don't want to see the bats. It's just that the bats, we, we need to protect them. Uh, we also have the author of the book on Richard Brunton, who was imprisoned there for counterfeiting. She's coming to do some readings. And we've got a Teresa Mansfield's Kitchen, which is, uh, she was the only female prisoner. We don't actually have her. We have somebody who's going to be, going to be uh, performing as her. There's it, just tons and tons of, of things. Escaped prisoner drills. Uh, we're going to have a cannon. So whipping post, I mean, we're we're pulling a lot of the things out. So we're trying to recreate as much as we can in one day the experience of what somebody could could have coming there for, you know, when it's it's fully open. It runs from 10 to 4, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., rain or shine, at Newgate Prison. It's on Newgate Road in, in East Granby. If you're on Facebook, East Granby Historical Society has a Facebook page. Uh, we do have a tentative schedule already put up there. Or if you wanted, um, I have it on my, my legislative website as well. It's repzawistowski.com, and I will spell that. It's R-E-P-Z-A-W-I-S as in Sam, T as in Tom, O-W-S-K-I.com. And we do have uh, the schedule up there and any other news that, that may be occurring beforehand. We look forward to coming to the open house on uh, October 22nd, and we wish everybody involved well with the ongoing efforts to get Newgate Prison reopened to the public. State Representative Tammy Zawistowski, thank you very much for talking with us. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Ruth Duncan, Christopher Shields of the Greenwich Historical Society, Jack Shanahan, Sophie Huguet, and State Representative Tammy Zawistowski. To read stories from this and other episodes of Grading the Nutmeg, visit ctexplore.org. Subscribe to receive the current issue at ctexplore.org slash shop. Thank you.